does God do with a disobedient prophet? That's the question being addressed in it's a funny, ironic, clever story about Jonah. God says, go at once to Nineveh, cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, you may think, for Jonah, it's kind of great. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, the greatest empire in the world at the time. Not long ago, Assyria destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, where Jonah is from. So imagine, in our own context, maybe this would help, imagine being a Jew in 1944, as World War II was still raging, as the Holocaust was in full swing. Imagine being a Jew and told by God, and given whatever safety you might need, go to Berlin and tell everybody, I've seen your wickedness. I see you. Go to Nineveh, Jonah, is what God says. Warn them that if they don't change their ways, they should be very afraid. But does Jonah go? Does he take the opportunity to be God's messenger who gets to put the fear of God in them? No. Jonah flees, going as fast as he can in the opposite direction. Is Jonah scared? Is that it? No, not at all. Does he question whether he's going to have the right words to say? No. Jonah flees because he knows God all too well. He knows that the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Jonah knows that God is to be feared, but he also knows that more than that, God is love, willing to forgive, willing to show mercy, and although Jonah likes receiving mercy and love from his God, he doesn't want Nineveh to get any. I believe the two-year-old word for Jonah's feelings here would be, mine! So Jonah gets on a boat, headed for Timbuktu, or the equivalent in its day, Tarshish, which is so far away from Israel, we're not even sure exactly where it was. Our one guess is Spain, which would have been the edge of the known world. On this boat to Tarshish are a bunch of non-Jews, Gentiles. A great wind kicks up the waters. They all start crying to their own gods. I can just imagine in my mind's eye Jonah rolling his eyes at their wailing. Like, oh God, are you kidding me? You're going to sink this boat all because I'm on it? How long do you let this go on if you're Jonah? I mean, he kind of sleeps through it, I know, but does he sleep hoping that the weather's going to pass? Become more and more confident that maybe it's not the weather? That it is God, in fact? Finally, Jonah admits to the suffering sailors who his God is. He lets them cast lots, all that stuff, and it's determined it's his fault that they're getting tossed around. He convinces them to throw him overboard, which, of course, calms the seas. And here we come to a moment of truth. What does God do with a disobedient prophet? Let him drown? Pick somebody else? I mean, how hard would that be? He's God. Make Jonah suffer a while? 
In the story of Jonah, we see a God respond to a disobedient prophet with persistence. That's what God does in the face of disobedience. God persists. God gets Jonah to where he's supposed to go, and once Jonah's on dry land, God says, get up, go to Nineveh, tell them what I tell you to tell them. So Jonah drags his feet toward the city, and once he gets there, he gives the least amount of effort possible. How can I do this thing with the least amount of thoughtfulness possible? He proclaims God's message as directed, but in the fewest words imaginable. Eight. Jonah preaches an eight-word sermon. Right in the middle of town. Forty days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then he's like, ready to go. Now, think about this. As a battleground state, we just experienced a multi-year political campaign. Billions of dollars were spent in efforts to communicate messages to us. Candidates you utter millions of words in an effort to reach our hearts and minds so that they may earn our vote. Jonah says eight words. And he isn't asking for something as easy to give as a vote. He's calling on Nineveh to repent, completely change their ways. You'd think some explanation would be necessary, some rhetoric, or maybe even a fact-checking website might be needed. If I were a Ninevite, I may wonder, who's this guy? Why should we believe him? Didn't we just kick his nation's butt? Like, aren't they working for us now? What is he doing here? But no, our text says the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone great and small put on sackcloth. They turned from their evil ways, and of course, God saw what they did, and of course, God changes God's mind about the calamity that God said he'd bring on them, and God didn't do it. And you know how that made Jonah feel? You've got to be kidding me. Or as the scriptures say, but this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. What does God do with a disobedient prophet? God persists. God is going to accomplish God's work. This story is not about the effectiveness of a prophet. It's about the mercy and grace of God. If God wants it to happen, God can even make it happen through an eight-word sermon, through a reluctant prophet. Now You might wonder, <clears throat> as I've preached about this story for a few minutes now, I've said nothing about the fish or the whale, or whatever it was that swallows Jonah and then spits him out where God want, wants him to go. Too often, we make this story about the fish, which would be kind of like saying a football game is about the football, or a wedding is all about the rings, the fish or the whale or whatever it is. Don't get stuck on that. I've had so many people over the years ask me whether this is, you know, physically possible for a human to survive in the belly of a sea creature for days, as though that is what the story is trying to communicate. The book of Jonah is not a scientific journal article claiming that we can travel long distances through the ocean in the belly of a fish. 
The Bible is not to be read that way, any more than the Disney movie Cinderella is to be watched like a documentary about how young, one young woman used a glass slipper to gain the attention of a handsome prince. It's not a how-to show, right? Cinderella is not about the slipper, and Jonah is not about the fish. It's about God, a God who calls us to surprising and even offensively ridiculous things sometimes. I mean, saying that Jonah was being called to the lion's den like a Jew during World War II could have been to Berlin, for example. That analogy to the Holocaust at the beginning of this sermon was not an exaggeration. One commentary I read by Roger Nan talked about how, how famous Nineveh and the Assyrians were for their brutality in war. In the British Museum, there are wall reliefs that depict a siege in Israel where there's piles of Hebrew heads being counted. Like, imagine just accountants looking at a pile of heads, and these Assyrian scribes are like, oh yeah, we're up to, you know, 4,822. The king would pay soldiers per head, apparently. It's not that Jonah doesn't simply like these Assyrians, like one town is a rival with another. It's far deeper. It's far more personal than that for Jonah. And yet God calls him to be an agent of warning that could bring forgiveness and mercy to those Assyrians. This is not a story about a fish. It's about God. Because not only should we be amazed at God's mercy with Nineveh after they repent, that God even gives them a chance is amazing. But just as important is that God gives Jonah a second chance. In chapter 3, I read... The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. You know, sometimes God gets painted as a very harsh taskmaster who should never be questioned and certainly never, ever be disobeyed. But God gives Jonah a second chance here. I've needed a second chance before. How about you? So we see God extend forgiveness and mercy to both one of his chosen ones, Jonah, and those who are completely other Assyrians. Others who have actually been his chosen one's enemies and conquerors. And yet after offering a second chance to each, they each repent, they each obey. And God's response to each is the same, redemption. Perhaps this story, which isn't about the fish, Maybe God's actions show that the Hebrews and Assyrians have more in common than they would ever have imagined. In the eyes of God, this story is telling us they're all worthy equally of God's love and grace. You know, we get so tied up in knots over how we're different and why we should keep grudges against each other. Sometimes we even convince ourselves that, you know, God likes us but doesn't like them Maybe this story debunks that kind of nonsense. It's a story about God that tells us not only who God is, but who we are in the eyes of God. And we, Republicans and Democrats, we, Americans and Iranians, we, black and white, straight and gay, Christian and Muslim, we, however we think of ourselves as us and them, we're all known and loved by God who wants to extend grace and mercy through Jesus to everybody, to all the world, to all of creation. 
Thanks be to God. Amen.